out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Railway Children, because I recently spoke to Gary Newby to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening in life. Anyway, this is the interview with Gary, who's going to tell us everything. Anyway, Gary, it's over to you. Yeah, I guess I guess everybody does. Um, but uh, it wasn't that early. It wasn't David Bowie was a bit before my time in a way. I mean, um, I'm in a couple of, a couple of years, the '66. So, um, so um, I mean, I guess really it's like punk was more like uh, really the kind of you know ten when I was ten, eleven, twelve, and the punk was sort of happening in '76, '77, '78. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in fact, I was a bit young punk, but I kind of missed that. So it's more of a post-punk kind of, um, that, that, that was the, but it still is in a way. For me, that's still the most interesting period of music that, that, that I always go back to all the time. It's kind of like 79, 80, 81, 82. Yes. Um, all, all that music around there is just when I really kind of um, switched on. I mean, you know, originally, um, as I say, I kind of missed, I was a bit young for, for the pistols and things like that, but um Probably the jam were like, um, you know, they were like my big sort of band for me when I was like sort of 14, whatever 13, 14. Um, and did you, and, did you, and were your parents at all musical? Did they have a, a musical influence on you when you were growing up? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, no, did, you, doing, did you, did you grow up musical. in Wigan? Was it Wigan yeah. that you, yeah, yeah, good old Wigan. Yes, um, and you didn't have any brother, older brothers or sisters who gave you sort of a musical influence at all. Yeah, I had an elder sister, but um, she doesn't. She doesn't um, do any musical. Um, my, my younger brother um, Paul is um, was always like sort of you know doing bits and pieces on guitar and 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 into, you know into, into music as much as I was. But I guess I don't know if he was kind of following what I was into as well. So I, I didn't really have anyone to kind of. Um, you know, sort of emulate or whatever, really, you know. Yes, because in my, my, in my sort of little world stuck in East Anglia, it was kind of, most people just played a lot of sport. There wasn't that many people into making music and being in bands. Was was kind of, was music quite a big thing in the, the kind of Wigan area at that stage? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I met the bass player of the Rebel Children, Stephen, at school. So we, we were at school and... Um, I mean, I was in other bands at school, but I was, I did, I did, I, I, you know, I wasn't like, I did try to do some kind of sports stuff like rugby and things like that, which is Wigan famous for, you know, at school, but, um, but I was kind of gravitated more towards music and art and stuff like that. So I was one of those kind of people rather than sort of, um, sports side of stuff. Um, mm. but yeah, you know, so, so it's in like kind of, even at sort of middle school, high school in, um, just kind of, you know, school bands and things like that. So I was, I was involved in music, but as yes. I say, when I met um, when I met Stephen, um, who played guitar at the time, she didn't play bass. Um, you know, we I'd, we kind of really hit it off and had very similar musical taste. Uh, so I was, you know, I spent a lot of time going around to his house and just, you know, 
getting up to no good and playing guitar and listening to music and stuff. So that was a big part, um, I think, uh, in the years, really. And how, and how did the guitar come into your world? Did you um, save up for a pot, um, paper round and, and purchase a, a guitar? Or did you have a yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, everyone seems to have those stories, don't they? You know, like the first cheap kind of hey guitar it was in those days, you know, just some sort of, like, I, I think I still remember it. She was like a, just a little acoustic. But um, I think, as I say, going back to the, the jam and things like that, that's what really turned me on to, that, you know, I wanted you know, I was one I wanted as soon as I, I got into them, I really wanted to get a Rick and Backer and stuff like that, but I couldn't afford it and just kind of worked my way up from very cheap guitars and got some a bit better each time, kind of traded things in and, you know, bought and sold stuff and eventually um did end up getting uh, you know, a Rick and Backer. Um but um yeah, you know, I, I think it was a jam and 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 then by that through them things like the who and 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 all the 60s bands and obviously the beatles um um you know so it was all it was all about guitar you know i mean that was the you know so that was the instrument you wanted to to play and to have yes and what was your the first gig you went to oh i think it was a jam actually um mm, that, was... that, that would have been um i think it was um preston i think it was um I don't know what year it would have been like some like seventy nine or something like that. Um, quite young. Yeah, um, blimey. There you go. So when you got to nineteen eighty two, you were sixteen. Did you stay on to do A levels at that stage? Um, well, I did. I did art, art at Wigan. I uh, did like a foundation course. Right. Um, so again, you know, just sort of surrounded by you know that was um, again like a very post punk kind of period. You know, so. Lots of goths and um, there's, there's a lot of really good record stores actually in Wigan um, that had like loads of alternative, you know, um, alternative kind of like uh, post-punk type stuff like Enjoy, you know, Enjoy Division, Bauhaus and The Cure really big and I, I just remember all those bands um, being on a kind of foundation art course there and, and just having you know the big hair and the, the big overcoat and just. That was the whole sort of scene at that point. Yes, absolutely. And then '83. This is a very interesting year, isn't it? The Smiths come along. Did did the Smiths have a, any influence on you at this stage when you suddenly saw Johnny Marr and then saw Morrissey and hearing the lyrics? Because I feel I find sort of that that period because there's the punk period, then there's that sort of post punk, but then the Smiths come along. It feels like there's a new chapter that suddenly opens up. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, that was sort of one of the first, well, I guess a few years later, but uh, I remember going to see them, seeing them in Blackpool about around that time, like the first album. Um, and yeah, I mean, no, they became like a, um, yeah, I mean, you can probably tell from the, from our, our music that, you know, the Smiths were definitely one of the, one of the main influences. Uh, they just kind of brought, Together, all of those things that I was, you know, like the Beatles and, and uh, the Birds, especially, um, who were like a big influence on me, like Roger McGuinn. Um, yes. Guitar playing, but, you know, Johnny Marr incorporated loads of those influences, you know, in, in such a brilliant way. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of weird, you know, we have a kind of weird mix, you know, but but it, but, but, uh, but I was also, I had strong influence by things like The Cure and, 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 uh, Echo and the Bunny Man and Teardrop Explodes and and that kind of um, 
Joy Division, New Order, kind of, which was, you know, a different type of music, a bit, a bit more kind of angular and kind of post-punk rather than sort of uh, that kind of very melodic birds type. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, definitely um, they, they were a really big influence. Uh, and probably around about the same time when REM came out, they were the other sort of really big influence on me. Um, you know, kind of, um, again, certain overlap with the, with the Smiths, but um, come from kind of a different angle, um, like that kind of American thing. Um, so I think at the time, though, but the first REM album, Murmur, of which I can't remember actually what year was it? Was it 83 or 4? Yes. Or was it did, it, did it have Radio Free Europe on? Yeah, Radio Free Europe, yeah. Yeah. That was a really, and, and the second album, um, uh, Reckoning, um, those two albums, especially on me and Stephen, as I say, we were just like kind of hanging out a lot and listening to those. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm actually, actually, I, I, I bought a, um, a cassette player recently. You know, it's actually quite hard to get hold of them these days, but I've got loads of cassettes from that period, lots of demos that we did. Um, prior to being the Railroad Children, uh, we had like a couple of other different names. But um, listening back to those demos, like they're, you know, they're very, um, they're more kind of, I would say like kind of pure or um, Equinibunium and kind of influence uh, than, yes. than probably... Than probably the Smiths or um, REM, but there's been there's, there's elements of that. I, I posted a, a demo actually on um, on our YouTube channel recently, a couple of, a couple of weeks back. Um, but you can hear it, that it's definitely got a lot of that jangle in it that, that that's kind of was coming from that. I think um, more REM really, uh, but 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 definitely elements of the Smiths as well. I I, I didn't really. Um, I really like Morrissey as a lyricist and, uh, you know, and sort of as a performer, um, but I never really connected with him personally. Uh, I think I've connected more with Johnny Morris just on the musical level, but yes. I connected definitely um, on a personal level with Michael Stipe and R.E.M. And I kind of, so I so I think, which I, and you can definitely hear that in our music, I think. Um, that. So it was kind of like a mixture of those, uh, definitely they, those two influences came to the fore later on. There's a kind of um, synergy between, in a way, between those two sort of things. But, you know, but, but all the bands I've mentioned were all kind yes. of Yes, and what about well. people like Neil Young did, you know, and, and sort of, and then we got that kind of new Paisley scene that started to appear in the Well, yeah, that. Paisley Underground was, was Paisley. a massive, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was a massive influence on me as well, like Rain Parade and uh, Dream Syndicate. All those American bands that kind of came along immediately after REM kind of appeared, um, especially things like Rain Parade, I was really into, um, and uh, Lex, uh, Lex Active, Don Dixon, which he he produced some of the early uh, REM stuff as well. Yes, uh, the IRS stuff. Um, is it Don Dixon? Not Don. What's his name? from Lex Active, I can't <laughs> yes. that's correct, I think. But there was, um, yeah, there was also uh, then... Uh, I have to Google it, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, and then that's there was a people, a bit, people like Green on Red that came along a little bit Green later. Green on Red was another one, yeah. I, I loved uh, um, Gravity Gravity Talks. Um, yes. Green on Red, I love that single. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Long Riders, I remember going seeing those. 
appointment. Got it. Was, appointment it was, so. so when you got to the end of your 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 art foundation course, which would have been 1984, is this had you finished the course? And this is this when the band starts? Um, God, I'm terrible on dates. Um, I don't even know if I was actually. I, I mean, I went to uni after that, so I don't know if I was at uni. <laughs> I have to have to work it out. Um, but um, yeah, it was around that. It was around that that time anyway, and, that, and that's you know when um, all, all those bands were kind of appearing. And uh, I think Olga Whistle Test was still showing Arium and people playing live coming over, and they were doing you know. So I was, I was watching all that stuff, and um, this is kind of you know. I mean, I'm missing out a huge amount of like what we were up to as a band. I mean, we're throughout um, sort of. Again, when I got these de- these demo tapes, I'm, there's no no dates on anything. I can't be really specific about when we were recording stuff. Um, but it must have been it must have been sort of '84. Yeah, we were still active, like around Wigan. Start, we'd started gigging. Uh, I was doing. Um, I'd got together with Brian and, and Guy in Wigan as well, who are from Wigan. Um, I think we all met at there's a used to be a club called Wigan Pier. Club, made yes. famous by George Orwell. Um, yeah, it used to be like a disco down there, with, uh, well, plus, um, where everybody would go. And that, that was a really great meeting place. And, and uh, that's when me and Stephen met Guy and, and Brian. And, and that's when we kind of formed, um, got together and actually started gigging around Wigan um, and uh, actually recording demos. And eventually we went off to, we sort of branched out to Manchester and started doing gigs there as well. Yes. Um, but yeah, but, but yeah, um, as you're saying, like, I, I mean, this was simultaneously, I was, I was, studied, I was actually doing a degree, a degree um, a bit later and um, was traveling up back to Manchester to rehearse and to do gigs and stuff. So, you know, it was, it was a busy time. Yes. It's a, it's a classic one. Where did you, where were you doing your degree, by the way? What was your subject? Um, it, it was graphic, graphics, graphic design. That's why I was doing the. That's why I ended up, um, or why I was interested in doing it with the sleeve and, and the bracket uh, sleeve and stuff for the for the band. Right. Um, you know, yes. that, was, that was my that's actually what I was studying. So, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think some of them worked out okay. Um, yes. Were you quite influenced by people like Barney Bubbles and and you know what was your sort of interest in graphic design? Who were your your go to people that you loved? Um, oh God, Neville Brody, I think at the time was like a really big one um, in the eighties. Uh, he was like he did the face uh, and things like that. Yeah. So he was he was the, he was the big sort of typography sort of guru at the time. Um, but uh, obviously Peter Saville. A big influence with all the factory. I mean, I mean, obviously that was like a dream country for a, if you're doing graphics, and then you we found ourselves on factory um, by age five, age six. So you know, I could go down to um, the offices in Palatine Road and just take whole take handfuls of records out of the. Uh, they, they used to have like just all, all the everything that they had was like lots of stock. Like they'd have like twenty or thirty of each album just just in rack so you could just go in and sort of take three or four of each you know blue monday or whatever and, and just um yes walk off with them uh, 
yeah, just walk off them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so that was great being able to do that. So, and you know, and I got to uh, I did actually get to meet Peter Savile at one point with, with Tony Wilson, which is which was you know very nerve wracking as well. I would imagine. Um, so, did you yeah. present quite a demo tape to uh, that you sent around the record labels at that stage? Yeah, I mean, you know, following on from what I was saying before, you know, about branching out from Wigan, we we started doing some gigs around um, some sort of small kind of uh, clubs and pubs. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the places we used to play in Manchester. Well, I'll probably get all the names wrong now, um, <laughs> but but. Uh, yeah, we, we started doing that, you know, uh, for a while, and, and actually, um, well, well, we had a few false starts and stuff, but we ended up with um, um, hooking up with Colin Sinclair at the boardwalk, um, and that's really when everything kind of took off then, because he was uh, he was just starting the boardwalk club, which you know went on to be like a real kind of. Um, I mean, when we met him, it was literally just a shell. It was like an old cinema. Yes, um, and we, we used to just rehearse on the stage there while and he totally gutted it and turned it into a club, um, into the boardwalk. Um, and had rehearsal rooms downstairs, um, and, and that was like a, a real kind of um meeting place for all the bands in Manchester. So, uh, you know, like we, we, we'd be in a rehearsal room next to the Happy Mondays and a certain ratio, uh, Stone Roses would be in, you know, you'd get Marky Smith from the fall would be walking around. You know, it was just like basically everybody in, in Manchester was, was in there either rehearsing or you had a bar upstairs as well, so they are rather rehearsing or having a drink at the bar. Right. Um, and uh, so you can imagine, you know, like just walking into that. I mean, it it, it, it wasn't there when we met Colin. We kind of watched that grow up from a shell into what he made it into, you know, very over a period of a couple of years, you know. But um and and, and obviously he was using the money that that he got from managing us and, and, and getting publishing deal and et cetera or whatever to kind of put that into the club to to develop it as well. Yes. Um but yeah been in that that was I mean we used to rehearse right at the top of the boardwalk uh, next to James. James James had a room next to us. Oh yeah. Um so you know, that was a really exciting place to be and just um, bumping into all those different people and, um, you know, just seeing, you know, just sort of that, that whole kind of atmosphere. It was, it was a great sort of uh, great place to be. Yes, I could imagine. So then you signed for Factory, obviously, and you got your first single. Well, you don't, well, well yeah, signing is probably not the right word. You don't actually... No one, no one ever actually signed for Vachi. You just, you just met Tony and sort of shook hands and said, "Let's split everything 50-50. And there was nothing. You never had. We never actually had a contract with them. I don't think anyone did. Um, no, this is true. This is it. Yeah. But then you got was it number? You got six, number six in the indie, the UK indie chart. So this was a good start, wasn't it? Things, the things were looking really positive before you got the album out, Reunion Wilderness. <clears throat> And you, yeah. got on, you got on the kind of radar of John Peel and Janice Long quite quickly, didn't you, as well? Yeah, yeah, we were quite quite lucky to um, to do quite a lot of sort of. Uh, I think there were, I think a lot of them are on um, Spotify actually. Um, the Radio One sessions you used to yes. go down to the Maidenvale Studios a lot, um, record them down there. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, at least track. There's so many different. 
DJs that we that we um, kind of did sessions for. I mean, John Peel, yeah, was the was obviously he was the guy that you wanted to attract and get get his interest. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we, we we got a lot of a lot of good healthy support from the kind of indie scene at that point. Yes, because you did your first Peel session, or Made of L Studio session, that was in mm. November nineteen eighty six. So. Your first single had just come out, so obviously you went down. Had Dale Griffiths from Mott the Hoople producing you as well, didn't you? So can was you remember? Yeah. Can you remember yeah. that that session? No, I didn't know that fact actually. <laughs> oh, maybe I did at the time. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Probably Mott the Hoople. Maybe at the time Mott the Hoople wouldn't have registered with me. I don't know because I was, um, as I say, I think coming from. Um, Coming from that kind of post-punk generation, I had, I had a kind of like maybe maybe not a very good attitude towards anything pre-punk. Oh, it was right. like anything anything pre-punk was kind of hippie and kind of not you know maybe it's a mother hoop a lot of time. Maybe I wouldn't been that interested in um, uh, you know, but uh, it, yeah. So, so maybe for that reason, it didn't really register. But um, yeah, no. I mean, I, I, I like I like some of the tracks now. So yeah. <laughs> yes, because you did four songs, didn't you? Consider, then in any other town, listen on Big Hands of Freedom. Did you mm-hmm. find, was songwriting and, and sort of creating, you know, these tracks, was that coming together quite easily at that stage? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, as I say, you know, when I look back on some of these uh, these, uh, these cassettes that I've got that I'm um, I'm probably going to try and release some, some of the uh, recordings if I can clean them up a bit um you know I, I i'd actually written a lot of songs quite a quite a few songs up to that point um so it wasn't as if i kind of just wrote those for the first factory album you know what i mean there was there was probably I, I don't know 30 or 40 songs that written before that at least maybe more you know um that i just kind of that, that ended up just getting um uh binned basically or not used um and obviously, you know, I think as a lot of writers say, you've kind of you kind of got to go through the sort of your early kind of um, meanderings, you know, as a writer to, to get to something. I, I, th- I think by the point we got to a general sound, that's that's when it started to feel like, oh yeah, this is this is starting to sound like, you know, um, we have a sound of our own, or you know, it's kind of gelling in some way. Um, yes, and so, but yeah, you know, it was it, that wasn't the first song I wrote. That was probably like, still, like to say, thirty or fortieth song I'd written. Yeah, you, know, you know. So with a song, I, I, uh, with a song like "Brighter," can you remember how that one came together? Uh, yeah, that that actually was was actually one of those kind of happenstance type things that happened in the studio. It, it, it kind of it, it we kind of went into the studio um with with, with a half formed idea <laughs> it was a bit it was a bit kind of dangerous actually you know to do that we went into with mike johnson who was like um new orders um engineer sort of went in and, and, and to be honest it was kind of a little bit half formed but it just kind of came together in the studio you know it's kind of made the adrenaline and I, I think I think it you know it went it went through some quite um, big changes uh, lyrically and and even like sort of the arrarrangement in the studio and once we had that kind of marimba uh, going 
um, yeah, that, that kind of really triggered a lot of uh, ideas. Um, so yeah, it, that, uh, but I like that. It's, it's kind of like where you're forced to kind of, I, I think, you know, there's quite a few bands that do that, that go into the studio without any clear ideas and they just write in the studio. I think New Order do that as well. Um, but, you know, as one example, but there's many others, but, um, but uh, you know, it, it, it's like, it could either works. I've done it, I, I did it after that once or twice and it was a disaster, you know, where you go in and you kind of kind of half-formed idea and but you just end up with a half formed idea at the end, you know, um, and it doesn't really happen. I think there was one. In fact, we did a track with. Um, it was. It ended up as the B side of. In the meantime, I think it's called Second Nature, um, yes. for Virgin. Um, and we went to a residential studio and spent. I don't know. We spent. We spent quite a lot of money on that track, and it was going to be a single. And but it, it. But it just. But I went in and it just wasn't fully formed, and then it didn't. I still like this. I still like what came out, but it's like an album. It's like a either a B side or an album track, really. Yes. But whereas Brighter, I don't know, something happened in, while we were in the in the studio recording it, and it kind of, it, you know, which is kind of a magic kind of thing. You know, as I say, that's brilliant when that happens. Um, but but I really just had like a kind of vague outline when I went in, and it came out kind of. As it is, as it's recorded now. Yes, because then you do a Janice Long session, don't you? In eighty-seven, was that much different of, of a sort of experience to a John John Peel session, or was it just like, oh, we're going down, we're just doing Janice Long? Because this one you've got, it's a live. It's is it quite live as well? I don't. To be honest, I have very vague recollections of all those sessions, but I didn't really. For me, like. The name of the of the DJ made no difference. It was just you go down to the studio. You've got some songs you're going to record. You record them. It just happens to be for John Peel or Janice or whoever. You know. I mean, I don't think you take a different approach based on the DJ. You know what I mean? You just go down, do your thing, whatever you have that you want to do. Yes. Um, I didn't kind of make any. I didn't have you know different different approaches for different shows or whatever. It was just you know, hey. Turn up, play some songs. And, uh, yes. And, and did uh, you? And were you at all influenced with a lot of those other kind of the more indie bands that had appeared, like the June Brides? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, yeah, that that, that the C eighty six, the world of people like yeah. the wedding, wedding present. Did that kind of interest you? Or were you feeling a bit more still? Your heart was on the west coast. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think I may have bought the first June Brides album uh, at the time. Um, Kind of like one of the singles, um, but yeah, I, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't like the wedding present or I, 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 all the shambling, shambling bands. I think we call them. At the time. Yes, that's right. The shambling. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I really would struggle really um, to, to to sort of recall any tracks playing of those bands. I think I, I was really kind of as yeah, kind of focused on the kind of paisley underground bands. Was happening in, in the states. So for me, that was just much more kind of exotic and interesting, rather than kind of coming from Bradford or you know, uh, <laughs> or Wigan, even. You know, it was um, yeah. I just found that, and especially we signed for Virgin America yes. after, after Factory, so we ended up going out to LA and doing all sorts of rock starry things, considering who we were and, and our position. You know, some really kind of crazy things. Um, 
And uh, I don't know whether that was good or bad, but... Um, how did you manage to get sort of because I've I've come across I mean it was um Lou from the Red Guitars I think their first album came out I think that was um I, I did I really like the Red Guitars actually their first album um, Yeah so slow slow to fade was was on whatever label and then they got signed to Virgin and I, I think when they were Actually no it's the Virgin album I like I think it's the Virgin album I like but yeah I think it is the Virgin album it did have a different singer I'm not sure, but I think that was the one that they found they weren't enjoying anymore because the record label was giving them quite a lot of pressure. Suddenly, they didn't feel like they were making a record that they wanted. It was more like the pressure of a major after being on an indie. So how did you find that kind of from a handshake with Factory to suddenly being on Virgin America, sort of having a few more people looking at you as um, needing to write that next hit single? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that was that was the problem with us. Um, that um, we probably sh- looking back, probably should have stayed on factory for uh, you know a little bit longer. But um, you know, th- but there was very much a a push <laughs> management, and and I don't know, and it's easy to get caught up in that as young guys, you know. Saying hey, you know, you've got to get on a major, and people are interested, you know, because you know after that initial kind of um, burst of sort of um, success on, on on factory and the indie charts and stuff, you know, then you then you have all the majors coming up from London to to Manchester to see, you know, who they're going to sign next and stuff. So we got caught up on all that. Um, yes. And had the and that sort of political period in the eighties. I mean, we had the. I mean, it was obviously very early was the Falkland War. Then we had the miners' strike. Then Greenham Common. A few years later, we had Red Wedge. Did did that kind of political time of you know you know Billy Bragg, the Redskins, Attila, the stockbroker. Did you know Paul Paul Weller and you know his the Style Council doing all those Red Wedge tours. Did that kind of come into your consciousness at all, or were you not that kind of engaged in it? Yeah, I mean it did. I mean Billy Bragg did, and um, uh, or well to some extent. Although I, I'm not a huge Star Council fan, I was it was a massive jam fan. But then, um, yeah, Star Council not so much. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, I mean Billy Bragg was probably the, the kind of you know trendiest, if you want to call it that. You know, the sort of out of that group of people and why, and why. Um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't particularly want to get sort of um, drawn into kind of like party politics and stuff. Yes, uh, in, it was in that it was, way. Yeah, it was just it was kind of in our faces, wasn't it? Though mm. it was the, the Thatcher's Britain, which was kind of in the stock market, and and you know, yuppies, lo- <laughs> the the yuppies, loads of money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Tell Sid, buy some shares in our sort of utilities. You know, it was kind of quite relentless, you know, the council houses being sold off. I just wondered how that affected you. And also 87, major moment, you know, the Smiths break up, that kind of glorious five years, 83 to 87. And then suddenly ecstasy comes along, you know, and there's suddenly a new wave of 16 to 18-year-olds who are looking for their next, for the, you know, the next new band. And I just wondered what it's like as an artist thinking, oh, that's that's a bit tricky. You know, they, they're they suddenly taking mm-hmm. ecstasy. There's a, you know, a guy called Gerald. There's that Chicago house sound. Um, yeah, Thanks you know, big, and, and, and suddenly, you know, bands thinking, oh, God, you know, they want us to sound like a dance record now. So I just wondered what it was like when you were on a major, 
kind of going in and starting to write a new album. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, definitely there was a kind of, um, maybe not, uh, I think it was like sort of 89 probably, it felt like, it felt like that that was really taking hold. I mean, I think we did the, in 88, we did our first uh, Virgin um, recurrence, the first album. Um, and it still felt like, you know, it still felt kind of, um, I don't know, that we were still in that kind of era of, uh, you know, in that particular era of, of guitars and uh, and that kind of music. But I think, that, you know, there was definitely kind of a, a whole shift, isn't it, as soon as kind of Baggy came out with, um, and, and the, you know, the Mondays, we were practicing, we were rehearsing with the Mondays next door for a few years, you know, and playing football with them. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, so they, they really put their time and built it up, um, you know, but eventually when they went, big with you know bagging stuff um yeah it, it, was, it was definitely i mean it happens and you have you had punk and then you had post-punk and then you know you, you have all these different and then that felt like a, a shift of gears into in, in, and shift of music style um which is difficult you know because then all the shambling bands and all the c86 bands and you know it's like where do they fit in uh, it, all of a sudden you know they, they don't want you know people have moved on to like more dance kind of yes. uh, in England, anyway. I mean, it doesn't doesn't necessarily translate to anywhere else outside of the UK, you know. But um, well, I know bands um, like um, haven't spoke to them, like the Mighty Lemon Drops and the Primitives. Were like, <clears throat> no one wants another record from us. No, no even the fans yeah. aren't interested. The the critics or the the writers aren't going to bother with us. And suddenly, it's like, do you know anyone wants another? you know mighty lemon drops album and it's a bit like oh dear no one does do they you know it's really tricky you know i kind of mm -hmm. didn't realize the difficulty that must go people go through the existential angst of it of going oh dear we're not there and i think you know it's interesting because with some artists and you know i mentioned david bowie you know they have that kind of moment in the 70s where they're absolutely on it and then in the 80s another decade they, you can see that they've even struggling with the what do I do next kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'll get this producer, mm -hmm. I'll get that sound, this is what... And suddenly you think, oh, you were leading and, and not bothered about anything. And then suddenly you become conscious and you're now following the trend and it's like, oh, it's a bit embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And then you find, you know, again, Bowie, you know, does find his way a bit, but it's still a bit hit and miss up until Black Star. But it is kind of interesting to see... What, how different that was one from the the seventies onwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways, I'm looking back over different bands. I mean, I think every band has has their heyday, um, and, and even though they may be around for like Bowie or Stones or whatever for years and decades after that, they they very rarely capture that kind of Zeke heist of you know where they where they totally they totally line up with what's going on and they just kind of epitomise the times or whatever. I mean, I think that only really happens. Yes. Um, it is like a, it's like a planetary kind of moment, isn't it? The planets mm. do just literally come, if you're mm. lucky. And obviously, so when you were with, with, with Recurrence, did you tour with REM at that stage in America? Yeah, um, we... Uh, we basically, the, the A&R guy who signed us, who knew Tony Wilson, um, uh, it's James Michael. Um, I think he actually, yeah, he, yeah, he went and put some big artists after us. Um, Gwen Stephanie, I think, who's involved with the name Michael. That's going to kill me. I'm terrible with names. 
Uh, but anyway, he he was he was an airman from Virgin America, and he signed us, and he knew Tony, um, and he also knew REM, he knew all the guys from REM. Um, so uh, yeah, all those things came together. Uh, he, he he got us to sign the Virgin uh, to start working on this, uh, to start working on a recurrence, and uh, and also started talking about you know maybe we can do some dates in the in Europe yes. um, with REM. Uh, kind of, promoting it um, yeah which 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 came off which was great and what was it like seeing this band who were beginning because i did an interview with miles copeland and it was like they were big weren't they they were so big rem at that stage mm. i mean oh uh, yeah they were massive uh, you know massive they hadn't at that point it wasn't until you losing my religion that they really um went massive mainstream but they were massive on an indie level and definitely and um counter alternative whatever you want to call it you know on that level they were probably you know one of the biggest bands as big as the smiths yes. um so so yeah to get to play with them it was on the document tour um so that so again that you know that album was that was the one i loved which was a big single on that um so yeah i mean you know that was just kind of boggling for us to to, to be supporting them in, in paris and i think in uh, Utrecht in Holland, and um, I'm trying to think about a couple in yes. Holland, uh, and Germany, Dusseldorf. Um, so, what's it? What's it like? Because it was a very short period of time of you playing at the boardwalk in front of a small crowd to suddenly being part of a, a juggernaut of a tour with, ma- you know, a massive band with that machinery and and industry and the amount of people and you know people who have got such interest in, you know invested in all this. What was it like for you as a sort of an artist walking out there and being part of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of it, it took a it took a little bit of adjusting because you know, you know, as you say, like you're kind of like uh, starting off that you're an indie band, um, and then all of a sudden you're sporting REM or being. Uh, I mean, you know, being in Virgin America's offices in LA and. Go to the Chinese theatre and doing all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, you know, so coming from Wigan to Manchester to, and doing that stuff, it was all kind of a, you know, really kind of a, a you know, a sort of world of, of things. I mean, you know, it was just as free, obviously, free, um, so the 80s, it's free, uh, iPhones and stuff. I think no one, you know, you never had, no one had decent cameras or anything. So I didn't, I really, looking back, I really wish I had taken more photographs. I had a, we didn't even really have a proper um, video cameras, you know. Like I think I had, uh, I think on the American tour, the first American tour I did with the um, Heartthrobs, I had like a Cinema camera that I'd take out and kind right. of film stuff. Um, but you know, but the, what came back from that was really, really dodgy. It wasn't clear footage, you know. Uh, it was very blurred and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I do wish I kind of captured a lot of. The, I wish I'd captured shots yes. of being on. Or with REM, that would have been great, you know. But we just kind of it didn't even occur to us. We, we were so in, so kind of excited about just being there that we weren't thinking about taking photos or anything like that, you know. Um, just sort of getting on with things. Yes. So the heartthrobs had they got out? Had Cleopatra's grip sort of been released at that stage, or were they still working on that? Because they were on one little Indian, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as were the sugar cubes. It was that, that was the tour we did with. Um, Actually, was that that was the second tour with the Heartthrobs. The first one was the, was with the Sugar Gibbs uh, of right. the US, and we we played with the Pixies and 
um, in Boston. And it, it was like, yeah, and we did this amazing gig in Boston. It was like, um, it was us, the Pixies and the Sugar Cubes. Um, again, you know, it's like, you, you know, that's that's just a dream come true kind of like gig, you know. Um, yes. Because this guy, um, he bought a book out last or two years ago on his kind of Boston, his Boston photographs. I don't I have to have a look to see if you're in it. But he was hmm. saying that every band in Europe and Britain would just go straight to Boston first, play, you know, the gigs. And he was just a young person photographing all these bands, a bit like you, you know, yeah. like, probably took it all a bit for granted, but thought, well, I'll photograph it because that's my bag. And then. 30, 40 years later, people go, my God, those photographs are amazing. Do you know who these people are? So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just wish I wish I had a camera. <laughs> yes, a, 30, a 38 millimeter reflex lens. So did you, at that stage, had you played Top of the Pops by then? Had you done? No, no that, that was much, much later. That was um, 91. Um, so, so that wasn't until the, the second version album that we, you know, when again, when we were kind of, we were going through this difficult transition from from our, our original kind of sound with um, recurrence uh, and reinner worldness, and going to the version um, like an album, which is when Baggy was full full built. Um, and I think you know we kind of we, we kind of obviously if you listen to uh, Native Place, which is the second album of Virgin, there's definitely some influences from that and there's a lot of synthesizers and the kind of dancier beats and things um but yeah. um so how yeah, did so, and how did every beat of your of the heart can you remember how that one came together i mean that was very that was very much i was lucky my i i, I got a flat in um salford which not quite just a few minutes in the city center steve was there as well um, so we could get to the border. We were only like sort of ten minutes from the border, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I would. That was, I think, as you mentioned earlier, you know, being on a major label like Virgin, that's where the um, and it was the second difficult second album. Um, that's where it got trickier. You know, it's like depression comes to like, like you've got to write something approaching a hit or whatever. Um, and so yeah, you know, so I, so I was spending a lot of time. Um, just writing and demoing uh, in my flat. We also, we also have like a small kind of demo recording kind of room out in the Bordock as well, next to our, tagged onto our rehearsal room. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of those recorders actually ended up the B-side um, that we recorded there. But um, yeah, no, it just, it just, it just ended up, I'd, as I was the sole writer, I would just spend a lot of time on my own writing songs, basically, and then sort of, Bringing them along to rehearsals, playing into the band, and then just seeing what what kind of stuck, and that was one of them. Every beat of heart. I mean, yes, I, 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 that that always irked me about that song is because like because every, because every, everybody was um, gets that you know they, they're lazily kind of say every beat of my heart, which I think like Rod Stewart or something. Um, but I, but I but I I knew that I knew that was potentially I knew that was a, <laughs> a potentially difficult title to use but i changed it to the heart and i thought you know that's what makes it cool because it's like it, you know it's detached it's it's not mine it's the it's it, you know it's you know so it's it's not corny in that way but everybody missed that and they just kind of thought it was like a really hacky kind of thing pop title you know what i mean um, yes but i mean i think it shows that people don't 
often read lyrics or even song titles so and I didn't think about it. Yes. And did you work with, was it Steve Lowell, Lowell at this stage, stage for the producer? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He'd worked with Gillian um, um, Cope. Uh, I think he did World Shut Your Mouth, played the guitar on that, which was like an album that I really liked. Well, yes. As I said earlier, I've always been a big teardrop, explodes fan, and, and Julian Cope. So, um, and Steve Powers, who, who went on to do, um, it was two, they were like a duo, Steve Powers and Steve Paul. Um, yeah, he went on to do, um, what's his name? What's that guy? <laughs> um, Robbie Williams. Yeah. Oh, he did, right. He did Robbie Williams stuff. Um, yeah, so they were very kind of, he, he was, you know, they were very sort of high production. In, you know, I think there was a lot of criticism that it was overproduced. Uh, I mean, we, we made some we made some strange decisions on that record. Like, for instance, we programmed all the drums, which was bizarre. You know, we had a decent, we had a good drummer in guy, uh, and um, that was just the kind of again. I think because that was the style of that time and it, it dance kind of thing had kind of really taken a grip so everybody's expected to have like metronomic drums and samples and stuff yes. you know nobody wanted to hear a real drummer sort of thing um you know which i really regret doing that because uh, you know it's, it's you know, interesting because there was a documentary made on the wedding presents album george best and there was this real thing about the drummer and the producer and it gets really sticky within the narrative of the film. And um, you have to see it to believe it, really. But there's almost a message that gets flashed up about, you know, it must be some legal thing that just comes up. So, you know, so the drummer gets removed from, from the project and the album and they get another one in. So you think, God, I thought that was just a bit of a shambolic band. I didn't realise the drummer was such a sort of key part of that album. And then I've been, been interviewed members of, like, the woman from... The go-betweens, Lindy, and she had a horrendous time with being a drummer in the, with the producer who destroyed her, and also Patsy, Patty Schmel, Shelmer, I think, um, who was in the Courtney Love album um, <clears throat> band Hole, and she, you know, gets broken by the producer who destroys her in the studio, and she ends up leaving and becoming, you know, an ad- addict and homeless you know it's almost like my god it really is (laughs) quite horrendous there's even a film you know yeah i mean guys guys think you're taking i think the fact that he didn't have the drum um i mean he did i mean he got involved in drum programming and stuff but it's just insane that people that that people were doing that it's like you know there's just no reason to do it um i think you know actually i know one band i like ten thousand maniacs uh, yes the, the the in my tribe album that was all a lot of that was all programmed and just, again there's no reason but that was just the sort of um you know and i think wish and fear was the album before that which again that's another real key album that i love um and um you know that was all live drums but then they kind of just did a lot of programming stuff you know but, but there was, it just became like a fashion at the time i think that, yes um, the, well, the, I think you know, was it was it Pete Asher who produced the Ten Thousand Maniacs, one of their albums? It was yeah, yeah. I think it was yeah, yeah. But I think it, I think, I think, I think, I think from, you did in my tribe. So when I did the interview with Lindy from the Go Betweens, it was like the producer said, "Right, we can have, you know, because she was a partner of um, the the lead singer, um, not Grant, the other one, Pete Robert Forster, Robert and Foster, the producer yeah. said." Um, we can oh, have... I, I love I love the Goatskins by the way. They're, they're they're one of my and they're yes. another like key key 
But the producer sort of held them like you can have this with your you know partner playing drums, but it will be like this and it's not going to be very successful. Or you could have it with this kind of sound and DJs will play it all over the world and you will become successful. So you you have to make that decision, you know, and I think, yeah, it was quite grim. You know, it was, no, it was, it, it's completely insane. It, it, it was utter, utter bullshit, basically, from producers, <laughs> um, you know, saying that, like, you know, it's just no one cares. Um, I mean, you know, people listening to records don't care if it's if it's. I mean, I mean, the thing that's annoying is that, like, say, especially on, like, say, on a native place, you're programming drums to sound like they're real, which is totally pointless. If you're going to use a drum machine, like, say, um, Blue Monday or something, it sounds like a drum machine. That's fine. You know, you're not trying to fool anyone. But, but or or again, the ten thousand minute stuff. You know, you're trying to program it to make it. You did, but you're really just doing it to have like a very grid-based drumming with no feel, you know. Yes. Um, so really, you're trying to be like you know, what's at least kind of less offensive than a real kick because that's too, you know, too lively or whatever. Um, so I think that's what we've got, and, you know. Which is the only reason why you would say that to the go-between is like, why would you, you, you know? Uh, there's no reason for them to have programming drums, you know. You know, you know it just doesn't fit the music um, yes. at all. I don't think you want you want feel, you want lively performances, not not programming. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, but yeah, that, that, I think everyone uh, at that at that period, like eighty nine, ninety, ninety one, um, you know, j- just because of, of changing styles, and then a lot of the bands at that time, yeah, were coming under that that pressure from the record companies to smooth out their sound and kind of sequence it up and get some samples in there and, you know, baggy beats or whatever, you know. Um, and, yeah, you know, and I, I think, you know, I think we uh, we sort of gave in into a lot of those things, um, which I wish we hadn't done uh, on yes. this place. But having said that, um you know, a single like Every Breathe the Heart, that was still and still is, you know, our most well-known single, our biggest hit, if you like. Uh, I think it was number 20 in the charts, and then we did Top of the Pops or something. Um, so, yeah, you know, so you can't be too harsh. Yes. But it's not but it's not the kind of track that I really listen to. I much prefer um, Recurrence or Arena Wilderness um, as an album. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. Did your management ever try and sort of push you into areas which were difficult as an artist to think, you know, from where you were coming from to pushing you away from the REM world and the Paisley world to, you know, support, you know, being, you know, being put into sort of a, a different category of shiny pop artists? Yeah, I mean, I think I think as soon as you're on, as soon as you're on a major label, uh, then you it's not so much management, but it's just implicit in being there. You know, it's like you know that you know that like you know you've had um, your advances and stuff, and that and have to be paid back. And meetings with A and R men, and how's it going? And <clears throat> yeah, you know, um, de- definitely, you know, that's always in the back of your mind. Um, I mean, you know, I think, I think. The day, even even in even in the sort of eighty nine ninety early nineties, the days of like, so REM had like five or six albums. 
you know, there weren't, you know, there, I, I don't know actually at the time how big a sellers they were, but, um, you know, they weren't massive uh, global until until they sort of broke through. But, you know, but that kind of steady five or six album thing, it, it had kind of started to disappear even at that point. Yes. Um, so there was quite a lot of, there was a lot of pressure even by the second album. It's like, okay, we've done one now and there wasn't a big hit on that. So you really need to do it on this one or, or you know. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, we, we had that, we had that, um, we had um, Everybody of the Heart was a minor hit. Um, but, you know, going into like the album after that, which would have been the third album, I and mean, that, that's actually when EMI, uh, bought Virgin out at that point, which is in '92. Um, but yeah, you know, at that point, it's very much like, what have you got? If, if, have you got a have you got an off the shelf hit that, that we can? Use? If not, you know, you're not really going to be making a third album at that point, you know. So yes. it's a completely different. Uh, I think you know that that's a completely different uh, trajectory to um, perhaps bands in the early '80s who might have. Uh, had a bit more leeway to, to do two or three albums, you know, even by then. And now it's just got worse, isn't it? I think you probably don't even get past your first album now. If you don't have a hit, you're not you're not making your second album, I don't think. <laughs> yes. um, but did the Seattle grunge, because you mentioned the Pixies and there was throwing muses on 480, and I remember mm-hmm. they did a tour together in 89. And then, then you had um, Bleach didn't you, from Nirvana coming mm. out in about 89 as well. And then obviously in 1991, 92, suddenly it's all kind of Seattle grunge. Did you did that kind of throw a spanner in the works of what you were looking to do next or had you by then sort of felt done? Um, yeah, so, 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 so really, yeah, this is the thing. I, I think that kind of... That, that kind of, uh, as I said for that kind of um, that one point where you really line up the the stars and everything was, um, you know, it was like 80, um, 86, 87 around that time would have been the, you know, the, you know, the C eighty six that sort of time. That, that's when you felt like really comfortable. But but then you had Baggy, and then after that, quite quickly you had Grunge. So it was too too shit. Um, and obviously, it was very heavy grunge. So, I mean, that's you know, there was elements of kind of uh, baggy that kind of you know I could kind of get into. You know, I think brighter was kind of like a dancey kind of a yeah. dance elements to it. You know what I mean? So it wasn't a it wasn't a million miles away. Um, just sort of like incorporate some of those things because I was interested in that kind of thing. But but grunge, you know, um, you, you know, and sort of that heavier style, it was was i don't know yeah you just felt like things were going in a different direction again and i'm sure a lot of bands i think the, the focus went definitely obviously to the state for that um and away from maybe uk the uk um, yes did you ever get sort of did you did you ever get an offer to support take that <laughs> well that 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 actually that was actually uh i think that, that was probably 92 wasn't it um, yeah, I mean, this goes back to pressure from management and, and record companies, but that's basically why we, we um, split up with our management because they they wanted us to, they basically gave us an ultimatum and just said, you either support, take that at GMX, I think it was in Manchester, or or that's it, when, you know, 
and we and I just said no, I'm not doing it. Um, uh, and so that we called it a day there. But 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 you know, it had happened. We I think it supported OMD. We did some big. We did it at NEC and did different things. Yeah. Um, some big sort of venues with them, but it, it did. It felt like this is just completely wrong. The completely wrong audience that we're playing with, you know, for me anyway. Yeah. Um, and then obviously take that. It's just like no, I, no. I'm just going to draw the line there. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I'm managing. I call it. You know, I don't know. It, um, I think he just always thought that I, I was I was being awkward. That I, it was like it was like you know he kind of. I don't know if he ever said it to Dre, but I think it was. You know, he said like, oh, you, know, you can you can write that kind of music, or you can write that big kind of hit, but you don't want to, or you're being awkward. It's like, well, I don't know. It's it's. I don't really want to be that kind of band, you know. Um, I mean, he would have been probably happy for if I decided Ryan take it, uh, take that type of music, you know. Yeah, that would have made him happy, you know. Um, Which was but, tricky because I don't know when Night Swimming had that still to be, and everyone hurts. Is that still to come in '92? Um, yeah, it's all, that's all around that time. Yeah, yeah. yes, it would have been hard to have sort of gone the Gary Barlow way than the Michael Stipe, really, wouldn't it? I mean, you can see elements of it in in that um, in Native Place, you know, album with the, the synthesizers, and the, obviously everybody at the heart was very poppy. But they just wanted to go further in that way, you know. But I was still, as I say, I was still. If you listen to it though, lyrically and stuff, it's still kind of trying to be a bit kind of miserable and a bit sort of melancholic or, or uh, you know, awkward or whatever. You know what I mean? It's not a. It's not. I was. I was definitely pushing against being like just. I don't know this kind of um, out and out kind of pop writer yes. or whatever. You know. I don't know. Maybe um, you know. It's the same. Maybe manager was right, and I was being. I was. I could do that, but I didn't want to. But I, I did want to be a guitar band. You know, um, I, I didn't want to be a synth kind of pop. I mean, I think actually, I think one of the um, one of the as it got towards the end of that that Virgin period after after No Place moving into the, the album after that it was like get rid of the band was which, which is the classic move by the record company. It's like it's get rid of the band, we don't need them, just you. I think they wanted me to, um, I think the term they use is like, go and sequence up an album with um, Ian Brody from The Lightning Seeds. Right. Like, we'll, put you, we'll put you in the, uh, in, in, the, in the studio with him and you just sequence up an album. You know, it's a sequence, everything's just computerised. and You know what I mean? And, and this is so far away from um, where I started, you know, which was kind of like real music, real, real musicians. And, uh, guitars and and um, you know, I mean, I think recurrence for me. I really like that album. I think that 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 was really. I think in the meantime is still like one of my favorite songs. I think that's um, close to kind of perfect for me for what I wanted to do. So I would have liked to have done more of that, but I was being pushed into getting rid of the band and sequencing sequence up for pop hit. You know, uh, uh, so yeah. Yes, God, that's so. I was so I was kind of I was kind of you know relieved or or happy in some ways to get away from that. You know, yes, um, it was kind of weird because I did an interview with that guitarist from Mud, kind of in Rob. He was the one who used to wear slightly flamboyant clothing. And, yeah, um, uh, then he, he wrote. Did he wrote? Um, he wrote. Uh, what's her name? Kylie. 
Kylie Minogue's hit, didn't he? Yeah. So he after Mud, he 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 writes. He worked. He worked with Paul Oakenfold. I believe, and and he tries to write these kind of dance hits, and he's and he did one with you know Kylie, but he's you know that's his kind of that's his thing that he's trying to find that next dance record to give to some young artist to sort of get clubbing. I, I, I think writing for other people is fine. I mean, I, I can do I could do things like that, and I have done that actually. I mean, I I um once once I I, I, I mean you know. I actually moved to Japan uh, in the early 2000s and then had like five or six years of writing songs for other people in Japan. I was writing real real out-and-out pop songs for, for, for J-pop and all sorts of stuff and um, manga and things like that. You know, so, so I, I don't mind doing it for other people, but, but I didn't at that time want to stand there and write and sing that kind of music, you know, that, that just felt a bit naff. To me. Yes. Um, so did you sit down as a band in like 92 and just say, you know, to quote, you know, Jim Morrison, this is the end? Or did it just not have that sort of finale? It just kind of just stopped. <laughs> it was definitely the um the take that gig was the end. That was it. <laughs> I think I think I think well actually no, it wasn't. We did we did sort of limp on a bit after that, um, without without any management. I think we did we did some gigs after that. Um I think we, we had it in our heads because we we had the Virgin album and the, and the single, which had done, you know, uh, every bit harm. We thought, you know, we can maybe sort of continue and something will happen. But but without managing it, it, it was very difficult. And obviously, as we say, things are moving in completely different directions. Rip Pop was starting to come along as well. Or, yes. Uh, and, and so, again, things, things are just constantly changing. Um, and I think, you know, we kind of failed to... Um, although you know it's, it's kind of weird actually because at the time, uh, well, actually much earlier when I went to when I went to the states, um, one of the one of the tours, I think it might be the Heart Trouble tour, which was in what eighty nine or something. Um, someone at Pol- someone who was linked with Polydor would give me all the all the jam CDs because I wanted them all on CD, you know, because it had gone from vinyl to CD at that point. And then I got really back into the jam at that point, and I was starting to write um, much kind of more aggressive kind of um rock songs which was kind of more in the vein of what rip pop came to be in a way um yes. but you know but it just didn't fit it didn't fit and actually uh, a lot of that stuff ended up on uh, the album that i did on my own which was um dream arcade which is actually quite rocky in a way if you, if yes. you hear that um but like you know but a lot of that stuff i'd kind of done uh, I, 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 I'd, I'd sort of become more you know again i guess you got like grunge and that but that was that was too heavy for me but so like rip pop and that kind of but just return to rock away from programming drums and samples just back to playing and stuff and um turning guitar up and things um but i probably in some ways i think got too far away from my melodic kind of roots and um and acoustic kind of roots uh in songwriting i think i probably went a bit too got a bit too carried away with the turning the guitar up on that particular album yeah it's quite different did you um, on those kind of well how does a band finish who you know how do you you know like the name the publishing who owns the music who's got the master tapes how does how what is that process or is there not a process i think i think unless there's i think 
you know, unless there's a lot of money involved, there isn't really a process. I think if there's a lot of money involved, then then lawyers are involved, and then there's then there's of course you know there's a legal process going on. But I think you know I'm, I'm sure with most of the indie bands, that especially you're talking about you know C86 era bands and that, I think it's it's more like a, you just fizzle out really because you know nobody's particularly keeping tabs on you financially because you're not generating a lot of money. Um, I mean yeah. I. I I mean, I'm sure you know it gets more difficult um, depending on how who wrote the songs and stuff and publishing deals and things. I mean, I I've written all the songs, so um, that was quite clear, you know, sort of clean cut with that and, and publishing and stuff. Um, but I was kind of like, you know, in a way, the only sort of active. I was only the, the really, only really sort of real active, maybe because I wrote the songs, so I felt like I had to kind of look after things and stuff. You know, I had a website. I, um, you know, I, I knew about, you know, all, all the things to do with PRS and all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, so, you know, so, so I had a bit of a process around that. But everyone else just kind of disappeared, basically, once we we split up. Um, yes. Um, you know, because because in a way, really, all that's left is a big debt. If, if you want, if you if you want, um, you know, if you're not selling millions of records. Um, you know, we never recouped on Virgin, so we ended up owing the money, you know. Um, I think it know, happened, the, yeah, because Jim Bob from Carter said that EMI said, oh, you know, you owe us some ridiculous amount of money. So, you know, we'll just keep, you know, every time there's any money, we'll keep putting it against the debt you've got. So you'll never yeah. you'll never get anything. Is that the same with, uh, the, with the material you've done for Virgin? Is it the case that you think, oh, well? Uh, yeah, as far as, as, far as um, actual money from selling records, you know, or streams or whatever, um, you know, um, <laughs> we did, I mean, we did a, quite a lot of promo videos as well, and each promo video was like 50,000 quid. Uh, and you know, you know, so there was just no way we were gonna, um, not, not unless you had a you know, sort of low number one or whatever that you were gonna, um, pay back the uh, pay back the advances really on all that kind of stuff. And tour support, you know, every time we went on tour, they'd pay for you to support REM or you know, do the, we did a couple of bus tours across the US, you know, which they're paying for. So I guess what well, that goes on the goes on the bottom line um yes but, so, but yeah you know i think i think it was um after that after we sort of fell out with that management when you don't have a management it becomes very difficult um you know to sort of do anything really because unless you're unless you're just you know there are some but I, I think was it um in spiral carpets like clint you know and people like that who who are a bit like managers themselves you know so um, they're entrepreneurial types, so they could maybe do both without, you know, without, without having their own management. But at that time, anyway, as soon as we didn't have a manager, we were just kind of like the phone stopped ringing. You know, we weren't um, yes. really, really was doing it, anything. So, was it a kind of a big decision to make your? Is it a solo album? Would you call you know Dream Arcade or? Um. I, I, I guess so. Yeah, I, I, it probably should be actually because it doesn't sound anything like the rest of the roads. Or I probably should have um, just done and work. That it, scary, and you work with new and you work with new different musicians. So did that feel 
kind of did that sort of inspire you you know recording that album yeah well i mean i was actually um um my wife used to work, uh, work at a studio called Master Rock in London, in Kilburn High Road. Um, and I was living in London and uh, recorded the album there. But I mean, at, at that time, that was the height of Britpop. And everyone was in that studio, like Suede and Eggman Bunny Man and Oasis. And you know what I mean? So, I mean, they were, you go in and, and there was just all these uh, blur. You know what I mean? Just anybody you could think of at that time was recording at Master Rock. Um, so, that whole time was, was was just very. It was just a lot of, of fun actually, just being around there. So, um, a friend of mine, um, who, you know, well, actually, a couple of guys who worked on that album, who mixed and engineered it, worked in the studio. You know, so they were friends of mine. But you know, but they were like working with, as I say, with um, Oasis or you know, Wade, etc. You know, so it was. It, it yes. was good just a bit it was just a good good again to be in that kind of um sort of happening sort of uh, atmosphere yes the john major tony blair years wasn't it 80 yeah 97 yeah, so, when we were yeah. very optimistic but then brit pop was going so what 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 led you to relocate to japan um yeah well that my wife who was who was um who was running um, well, with some other um, people, the, the Master Rock Studios. Um, yeah, we just, we just went, decided to uh, decided to emigrate a few years and have a family and went to Japan. Um, yes, blimey, there you go. I've I've done a few interviews with people in Japan. A member of Gay Bikers, Gay Bikers on Acid, I think. I think yeah. I think people went to teach teach English as a foreign language. I think generally, isn't it? But yeah. You, but you you kept writing and then sort of got into K-pop, which is probably fantastic. Yeah, I mean, again, because well, I mean, my my Japanese was was pretty pretty terrible actually. So uh, um, I, I mean, I've always been I've always been involved um, with computers. Uh, even I, I mean, I had like a, a Macintosh. My first one was in about nineteen eighty nine, so probably. And I was using it for music and, and graphics, so very early, really, in, in things. Oh my God, like you probably music. had early versions of PageMaker, didn't you? And um, Quark. Yeah, Photoshop One and things like that, and uh, you know, Pro Tools. The, the, the before, it, well, you know, the, it was actually the software before Pro Tools. Um, so I was I was doing demos with with Macintoshes, and I mean, before that, I was using everybody used things like Atari computers to. Which became logic later on, and then yes. um, so I was involved in all that. And after I was in the band, um, I I just went back to because that was my main interest as well as music. Um, I was in advertising and and uh, what became new media, and then what became the internet. And I was programming and doing graphics and stuff, which is what I do today, basically. Um, and um, but yeah, being in Japan, it was difficult to do that because of the language. So I had to, so I had to fall back through some certain contacts on on there and see if I could get some music work. And I did, and I was lucky to um, be able to do like um, yeah, some songwriting and, and arranging and stuff for um, the manga and um, the J-pop artists, which was <laughs> which was you know pretty wild actually. Just going to. 
studios in Tokyo and, and, and recording stuff at home and then taking it in and then mixing it in big studios, do it all back in tracking and get get these artists interesting on it. Yes. Um, many. So what was your, because uh, I just noticed you, you recorded with every little thing. Mm. This is one of, so was, which, which was the particular artist that had the biggest hit for you? Um, Suchia Anna, I think, would have been the one. She was um, Anna Suchia in, in uh, English. Um, he was a model at the time. Um, yeah, I think if you search, I think it's on YouTube, that one. Yes. Um, I did several albums and singles with her, though. Um, and some of those were like, you know, top 10. Was that, in, was in that Taste My Beat and Strip Me? Yeah. Uh, but I also did a whole. Uh, I also did a, a whole um, lot of arranging and stuff for her as well, playing guitar. And, um, but I was I was writing lyrics. Um, I actually did some lyrics for um, for a manga um, film I've seen um, Which um, what's, the, what's the guy from Kiss? Um, Gene yeah. Simmons. Yeah. Oh yes. He did the. He did the. Um, he did the uh, the vocals for it, and then I think um, uh, what they called Slipknot. <laughs> the oh yeah, Slipknot as well. Detroit Metal City. That was it. De- Detroit Metal City was a film. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say. That. I don't think anyone. In, I don't think anybody knows this, but I wrote the lyrics to the, to the song that they did. It's, Detroit, uh, Detroit Metal City. This is. It's actually. It's, it's, it's called Fucking Palace. <laughs> it was a completely. Uh, I think they did it as a single split note or or something or whatever. But anyway, yeah, stupid stuff like that. Excellent, God! You suddenly you certainly entered another part of your creative process there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that, that was. Uh, I think, as I said earlier, like because I was not writing because I was totally just writing for other people. I was doing lyrics. I was doing arrangements and and uh, writing songs, just like all that stuff. Um, but not for myself, you know, so it was quite a new experience. So it was not about self-expression so much. It was more just like having fun doing like completely unrelated styles of music that I would never yes. well, do I for myself. Well, da- you know? well, David Bowie used to often say that he would have been happy to be a writer if he could find someone to do, sing his songs, but then he found that he, you know, no one would, so he became a singer. So I guess, you know, it's a similar thing of enjoying writing and uh, then letting someone else yeah yeah no it's true actually i mean i, I think i mean i you know i actually wrote I, I, again i must have i think i wrote about 100 songs or something or maybe more i wrote because they have this thing called uh, compe uh, which is a competition in, in, in japan um for songwriting so you basically some artists will say hey i want some songs i think they may do it here as well um and then you'll get like i don't know 20 or 30 writers will all write a song and then they submit them and then whoever wins, the, you know, whatever, they'll, they'll select the one they like. Um, and I did tons of that, um, which is very time-consuming. Um, uh, and, you know, not so many wins there, but I, I, I got a few, but um, but I was mainly probably doing more arrangement and kind of lyric writing and things like that. Um, but it is very hard to... Um, to, to, to sort of take yourself out of the music and then just write yes. to order, to, to order in the style that they someone's asking for, you know, without, I would always tend to put a bit of a kind of like 
edge on it, which maybe was too edgy for people, you know, because I was kind of trying to maybe, again, make it not too poppy or something, you know, um, working against myself, you know. So, but, okay. you know, that, that, that's, it's very hard to, it's, you know, it's very hard to, you know, I don't know if that's why people, you know, as you're saying, but David Bowie, why people didn't want to sing those songs, maybe because there was too much of him in it. And, and then it, they didn't want to sound like David Bowie, you know what I mean? So, uh, it's the knack I think of the writer to be able to write for somebody but sort of not make it sound like you you know what I mean it sounds like them sort of thing um, to sort of get into their head and sort of make it fit what you know fit them yes um, yes and then and as as we were trucking through the decades you know then 2015-16 do, do you get the kind of is like the Magnificent Seven or the return of do you get the call to to reform what what happens in that moment uh i can't remember so i think i think somebody may have just mentioned uh on social media you know if you thought about doing this and that um i don't know and people do from time, you know have been from time to time but i don't know just at some point it just stuck and thought yeah well why don't i just um get my call and just see what they're doing if they want to do it um that's 2016 i yeah, it just felt, uh, 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 it must be something to do with time because it just seemed like at that point it exploded. There was loads of people reforming. There was this, sh- we did that Shine On Festival and there's yes. just tons of bands reforming. So I don't know, it must have been something in the air that made people <laughs> feel like they that was the time. Yes. I don't know, it was like, you know, like a call, a call to indie bands for that generation to, re- you know, now's the time to reform. Um I can't explain why, why there's something because I don't know. I feel maybe I haven't checked, but I've got to. I would imagine that's died down a bit now, perhaps. But around that period, it seemed to be a lot of, um, you know, get-togethers and reforming of like mass amounts of bands. You know, bands that you, you know, you just never would dream would get back together again. Um, you know, all of a sudden reforming. But um, we did that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was initially it was. Um, Again, we didn't have management, so it was it was a bit. I, I was kind of just um, building calls from people and stuff, um, and we did manage to go. We went to New York and did did a kind of festival there in Germany, um, and a bunch of stuff around the UK. Um, yes. So the, yeah, so that was it was good fun actually. And that, um, was that the first time you'd all met since you know ninety yeah. two? I think yeah. it was actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, since yeah. I think I may have been up to the, the border one, one more time after 92. And then after that, yeah, I haven't seen anyone since then or really been in touch. Um, as usual, you know, you um, kind of had enough of each other at that point. So it lasted <laughs> a lifetime, I think, probably, you know. And uh, um, yeah, and then, and then it, so, so that was that was good fun. It, that lasted about two years, you know, we, we kind of sporadic kind of. Um, live dates in London and, and various other places. Um, and I probably would have continued, actually. I think Guy, the drummer, wanted to continue as well because we were just having fun doing it, you know, getting a good reaction and stuff. And, um, but uh, but the bass, Stephen, the bass player, and Brian were, were in, basically were interested and didn't want to do it. So um, just fair enough, you know, they just felt like they, they'd kind of... Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, you know, did what they wanted to do with that sort of get uh, re- reforming. 
Yes. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, and, and, and uh, you know, I think in Japan, actually, I, I, I did like a kind of, just, I think there's a video on YouTube, I did a kind of gig with, with some Japanese musicians doing some railroad children's songs, but definitely, like, um, there's something about, you know, you can't recreate that. You, what, I don't know what it is, but you can't recreate that. Thing. I, I've, I've, you know, I've played Robertson songs with other people as well, but you, there's something about those other four of us, as you know, that, that kind of when we get together and just play, then it sounds like the Robertson. Yeah. So, and when I play with someone else, it doesn't sound like it sounds like something something else, or it feels like something else. You know, so so that was nice. You know, we just got together. We were actually. Um, most of the guys are based up in uh, in Wigan or Manchester, and, and and I was in London, so we'd meet in rehearse in Birmingham, just halfway. So we were all driving down the motorway to Birmingham, rehearsing, and then going home again. Um, which obviously got a bit tiresome, uh, you know, doing that at the weekends. But um, but yeah, but soon, you know, just getting together even on the first rehearsal, just boom, you know, it just the old. It was like riding a bike, you know, and you just start playing and. Uh, you were back. I think because we probably just in the past had rehearsed it so much and played those songs that it's, you know it's just muscle memory was still there. You could just yeah. play it without even looking, sort of thing. Um, so yeah, so being able to do that's fun because because obviously if you if you play with other musicians who don't know, then it's actually quite a lot of work trying to in rehearsals trying to get a live set together that kind of works, you know. Um, but um, but I think for that reason, that's why I think when when, when the two um, Brian and Stephen didn't want to do it anymore, it's it just kind of the idea of, of 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 trying to recreate that with some new musicians. I don't know, sort of is it, not not as appealing, really. So we did, I had, no, we didn't play any. I haven't played any gigs after that. No, really. So John, so what status? You're obviously a creative person with your your graphic art. Do you do you still have that kind of musical kind of itch to um, that you still enjoy writing songs or playing guitar? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I mean, I've got the guitars at the back there, but I mean, I, 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 yeah, I play guitar all the time. Um, I I think I think probably the distinct of songwriting in Japan probably got a lot of the. Songwriting urge uh, out of me because I, you know, just did it. Was doing it day in day out, hundreds yeah. of songs for different people. Um, so I, 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 I don't have as much um, the drive, I think, to, to write things these days. But, and also, I think um, I don't know. It's um, it, it was always a difficult uh, decision to do something. For the railway children, or to do something for myself, to do something as Gary New. I've never done something as Gary Newby, but to do a solo record, because then it doesn't have to sound like the railway children. It can sound, you know, and that's probably the thing I should do if I do anything. Um, you know, it's it, I, I want, you know, I wonder, you know, probably there's no need for another railway children record. Um, in some ways, you know, that's kind of um, what's the word? You know, it's kind of a retro thing. You know, it, 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 it's second time. You know, in a way. Um, yes. You know, but you know, but but, it, but but listening to new bands, you know, um, it doesn't seem to be like the the clear um, sort of 
movements of music that we had at that time, the sort of late, you know, in the eighties and early nineties. Um, now it seems a bit, you know, it's just got masses of different types of music. So I find it very difficult to, kind of, but I can hear like elements of of that kind of jangly guitar or, you know, you know, certain things that we were doing. So you know, um, you can argue that there's a place for that kind of music still, even though it's not the. I mean, guitars in themselves aren't really in mainstream music so much anymore, anyway. You know, yes, really but we hear those. But with streaming, you know, Spotify, you still get a lot of monthly listens. So obviously people are still discovering the mm. band and not just old fans who want to, you know, there's always young kids out there who are going to be listening to the music for the first time. So, um, yes, like, and also the production and everything, you know, it hasn't dated, has it, particularly? It doesn't have that, well, <laughs> you know, it's not too, you know, it's not like prog rock or something like that, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it does have a real kind of feeling. I mean, there might be the production on some of the albums, but the songwriting... Well, uh, well I think 80s, is, uh, uh, there's so many bands now that, that um, are aping the 80s sound, you know, uh, or production, you know, and, 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 uh, or, or just even style of song, you know, so... So is it case you've got sort of a, a sort of a, a catalogue of you know potential solo material that is there sort of on your computer that you could go in a studio with some musicians and create a, a solo album? Oh yeah, well I mean yeah, I mean I, I wrote a whole album uh, directly after Native Place for Virgin, like you know that, that we basically that that would have been the third album that got shelved, you know, so all those demos, um, you know, I. I, I but, but it's hard, you know, would I want to, I could, re, you know, I was toying with this idea the other day, actually, you know, because, and then I've got all these songs pre, pre the Rebel Children as well, um, which I quite like, uh, you know, um, melody-wise and stuff, you know, and some of the ideas. Um, but I don't know, uh, do you re-record those and then release them, or do you just release these, these demos, because the demos have a kind of, um, you know, rough kind of magic to them as well that you can't recapture. So it's like, or do you just ignore all that and then just write some new music? Um, yes, it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to, um, well, I mean, I've just started actually to put together a Bandcamp page because I think Bandcamp might be, maybe that's the best outlet for things like that. Yes, that's always a good one, Bankham. Oh, you need mm. Cherry Red Records to bring out the entire collection <laughs> with all the rarities and demos because they're always good at doing those those productions, aren't they? Those, yeah, know, yeah. Well, I did, yeah, I, 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 I've got like I did like these things called rarities. Like these sort of they're not official releases because I have to sort of, sort of work out what all the licensing uh, thing is and stuff. But you know. Um, there's like a couple of collections of rarities that were like 12 songs or so, um, you know, that I sort of made available, should we say, like on the, on the internet uh, a while back. Um, so I don't know. Uh, they might appear on Bandcamp or whatever. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, the only other thing is that, you know, it's like I, I did get asked, like, you know, quite a lot to put, do you want to be on this compilation or do you want to do that and stuff? But it gets like tiresome, you know, after a while, because it's just like, it's actually quite, there's actually sometimes a lot of paperwork and stuff and tracking things to do. And, and it's just like, well, another re release and stuff to, you know, and you, and you earn like this paltry amount of money from it. So it's just like, what's the point really? You know, it's just, 
you know, repackage, re-release stuff all the time. I don't know, not that interested in doing it. Yes. Oh, I know. It's tricky, isn't it? So who does, is it the case that with your your back catalogue, is it just still kind of scattered over different labels and different publishers who who own who own what and who owns the masters? No, it's it's all on BMG. Right. I, I did I, I did a, did just a kind of uh, administration deal with them a while back. So um, the publishing is just with them. Um, but obviously, mass recording side of things like who owns the you know record you know that's uh, I mean the factory stuff's pretty straightforward because it's bands because there's never any contracts with those stuff. But obviously, Virgin still own all the Virgin things. Um, in perpetuity, probably. I don't, I don't know how long that. I think it just goes on forever. That that contract. Yes. Um, it. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and then you get things like was it Taylor Swift and people that they just re-record everything, don't they? <laughs> and re-release it. You know, but you know. That's yes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Have to. Have, I, I don't have an audience that's fine. So I'm not going to go to those lengths. You know? Yes. So, do you think you'll ever play live again? Not just as it just yourself, not just you know with a band because mm. obviously reforming is a whole other gig. But do you ever sort of get a temp, a feeling or temptation to? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it's definitely something I want to do. Um, it, you know, I think it's. I think just coming up with. I think it will be like so, you know. As I say, there's always that question of is it the Railway Children or is it just do some solo and just you know, um, it could be both. I guess you can do both. You don't have to choose, but um, um, I wouldn't want to just be kind of like a retro kind of thing though, where you're just always playing old songs and yes, um, you know. Think, you know that that whole kind of shine on thing when you just go to see all the hits from the eighties. You know, I, I'm not really, it's not really that interesting to do that. Um, so yeah, it, it'll all hinge on whether I come up with something that, that sort of sparks some interest in me to to want to uh, record something and put it out. I mean, it's easy now, isn't it, to put stuff out? You, it's so easy. You just um, I've you know recorded at home. Uh, and then put it onto Spotify or whatever, you know. Um, it's really easy compared to how it used to be. Um, yes, and, and Bandcamp is the go-to Bandcamp, place yeah. as well. So um, yeah. I think that, that that is it, actually. But, yeah, it would be it would be fantastic if you did some solo gigs. But, um, yes. You, you yeah, know. definitely. I mean, I definitely, yeah, I mean, if, if I can, it's not easy to find. It's not easy, as I said before, like sort of getting a group of musicians together, you know, that where it that, that gels where it works. I think that's one of the difficult things. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, if you, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular that you would have gone, oh, yes, I would have told them that? Um, I think... Uh, I, I think... I think just... Uh, I was probably a little bit kind of shambling, a little bit kind of rough, a little bit lo-fi, a bit, a, a little bit kind of rough and ready in certain things. I, I wish sometimes I'd have kind of taken more um, time with some songwriting or, or some demoing or certain aspects and certain things. I think sometimes, um, you know, so, but, uh, you know, I think I learned, I learned that with time, but when I was 16, I think 
you know, uh, and around about that age, um, yeah, I, I probably wish looking back some of the things I wish I'd kind of like um, crafted more, you know. Yes. But, you know, but 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 that was an aesthetic as well back then. You know, of, of, of kind of it was you know, you know, looking back at some of those recordings that are very kind of lo-fi in a way. You know, very, but they have a certain charm as well. So, you know, and it was it was. I mean, it's like oh yes, that was twenty years. And you think no, God, it was forty years ago. Blimey, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> I guess that, that was, was when. Yes, it's quite striking, isn't it? Really, but um, yes. Well, I hope you you know you get back in the studio or some such thing and um, record a solo album. I think everyone's you know anyone who's creative has always got something there. That mm. you know, like Bowie's last album, Black Star, was you know probably one of his amazing most amazing albums ever. But yes, the circumstances were that's, a bit. That's, that's a goal. <laughs> <laughs> that's a goal. What's yes. waiting for? Yeah. Just kind of you know pictures. You just need a Tony Visconti, really, don't you? Yeah, well, that, is, that does help, I'm a Tony. Yeah. A Tony. We all need a Tony, don't we? <laughs> and that, dear listener, is going to be the end of the interview after, you know, we just have a few more moments to say goodbye. But anyway, that was me in conversation with Gary Newby to find out more about life in the Railway Children and also, interestingly, life after the Railway Children. So anyway, you can go to the Facebook page and find out some more information or we'll certainly look at pictures from the golden period. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.